Helping you build a better brand through the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. This is the Rightly Designed Show and my name is Thomas. Today we've got a special guest who's going to be with us and her name is Mignon Fogarty. She is also known as Grammar Girl and she's the founder of the Quick and Dirty Tips Network. So from time to time, I am going to take a little bit of time to take uh, to bring on a guest who can just give us a little bit uh, more insight into what it's like to build a successful brand. And Mignon has done just that with the Grammar Girl podcast, as well as a number of the different things that she has continued to develop uh, in her time as an entrepreneur. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. Okay, we're here today with Mignon Fogarty, also known as Grammar Girl, who is the founder of Quick and Dirty Tips at quickanddirtytips.com and is the host of the Grammar Girl podcast. Welcome, Mignon. Thanks for taking the time to come on the program. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those who aren't already familiar with Quick and Dirty Tips, could you give us a quick moment and just tell us a little bit about the site as well as how it got its start? You bet. So I started Grammar Girl almost 10 years ago, and that is a podcast that gives sort of a five to 10 minute quick writing tip every week. It's meant to be useful and interesting, something about language, Um, ideally something you can use. uh, When I started, it was something you could use every day. Now it's become a mix of that and just fascinating things about language. So when Grammar Girl took off, I believe that the format was part of what made it successful, being so short and scripted so it doesn't waste people's time. And I started adding shows with other topics. So the first show was Modern Manners Guy, and um, then we had Legal Lad, and we, I added five or six shows before partnering with Macmillan Publishing to grow the whole network and make it even bigger, because I knew I couldn't do it alone. Alone. So today we have 14 or 15 shows in the network that cover different topics. They um, each have a podcast and a corresponding website, and some of us have email newsletters, and a bunch of us have written books. And you know, it's just become a really big, multifaceted network. Yeah, it's become quite the yeah, it's become quite the network. I've noticed just from reading along on some of the articles that you have on there, it looks like it's just kind of continually grown. What's it been like for you? building the brand of Quick and Dirty Tips, and what are some of the things that you've done to help it grow to the prominence that it has today? Right. Well, one thing I decided um, a couple years in, in the beginning, I was running the network as well as being Grammar Girl. And a couple years in, it became clear that I couldn't do both. And, and so, and, and also, the brand for Grammar Girl is very different from the brand of the you know entrepreneur who runs the business and founded a network. They didn't really go together. And so, it at that point, it, I handed a lot of the day-to-day operations for the network over to the people at Quick and Dirty Tips with, who are with McMillan, and I started focusing exclusively on the Grammar Girl brand. So I really only just work on the Grammar Girl brand now, and you know I think about that all the time. I try to be on social media a lot and where everybody is, you know, if you're, if your preferred network is Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or Snapchat, I try to be there. Um, I don't go full steam everywhere. Cause I think you also have to enjoy what you're doing to do it consistently and do it well. But right. I, I try to have a presence in as many places as I can. 
Yeah, very cool. Yeah, because I've noticed it has grown to become quite the brand. So that definitely makes sense because there reaches a point in time when you're building a brand that you kind of have to split directions because it's almost like you created the network and the, ne- the network kind of took off. And it, was, it almost seems like Grammar Girl has kind of just become part of that network. And then you can just focus more in on Grammar Girl itself. So, no, that, that works very well. Very cool. Right. I mean, one thing you, I knew we were going to be talking about brand, and one thing I was thinking about that just happened this weekend is, you know, I've, I've recently launched a Snapchat channel because that's pretty new, and my username there is that grammar girl. And, you know, on Snapchat, it's very authentic, it's video, and I do a mix of interesting things about language, but also things just about my life because it's sort of a behind the scenes. Um, network. And this weekend I was, um, at an event called Tough Mudder, which is this extreme sporting event. And oh, yeah, I really I've heard t- of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't do it, but I was in the area. I was at the event. I don't go climb through the mud, but, um, I, I thought really hard about Snapchatting it because it's, it's a big event. I mean, Snapchat actually had a channel just to feature Tough Mudder. So it's very, very popular. And I, I kept looking around and I'm like, these are not my people, you know, even though I'm here and it's interesting, it's just not on brand. Like the people who follow me aren't going to care. So even though it's sort of a behind the scenes of my life, it's not a behind the scenes of the part of my life that my people are going to care about. You know, if I were at a book festival, I would definitely Snapchat it, but you know, I just felt like Tough Mudder was too off brand for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a really good point. And that's actually something that a lot of people can can learn from and take away from because when you are building a brand you have kind of an idea of what people expect to get from that brand so no that's a really good example of making sure that you stay on brand because you're exactly right i could totally see how people are expecting from grammar girl to get grammar and then if there's this you know tough mutter event that kind of comes through snapchat it'd be like what <laughs> so right and, yeah. and there are other parts of my personal life that are more relevant to that, are, that fit in better with my professional life too. You know, I do all, all sorts of personal, but interesting things that, that could be interesting to my followers, but that, that just wasn't one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So you mentioned, uh, at one point the grammar girl podcast, which of course has been going for a while. How long has the grammar girl podcast been going now? It'll be 10 years next month. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you've been podcasting since before it was even cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit more, I guess, about how, you know, what made you decide to start the Grandma Girl podcast, how it got its start and that sort of thing. Right. Well, um, I was working as a professional freelance writer and editor focused mainly on tech, so biotech and science, because I have a background in biology. So I was living in Silicon Valley working as a tech writer and editor. And because I love tech, I heard about this new thing called podcasting, and I just wanted to try it. So I tried I had a science podcast first, and that was taking a lot of time because I was trying to do interviews, and I had a co-host. And back then, it was much harder to do audio interviews, too. So I did that for about six months and it was taking too much time. So when I started Grammar Girl, I was actually looking for something easier to do to stay, to keep podcasting. And I realized that in my, with my editing clients, I was seeing them make the same mistakes over and over again. So I thought, you know, oh, well, I'll just take this part of my work that I'm already doing anyway and do a quick five minute writing tip every week is just a little podcast. And I didn't have any big expectations for it. And it just took off within, I think within six weeks, it was number two at iTunes. It was just crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely crazy. And, 
Um, then I started getting media attention because, you know, it's fortunate writers think that it's really cool that a grammar podcast is doing well. So, you know, I, it, it was just a, a topic that writers were interested in covering, I think. So, um, I got some nice early PR from the wall street journal and CNN and, um, you know, it just, you know, and I kept thinking this can't last, but it just, it did. <laughs> so, um, that, that's how it got started. And, and then because I guess because I had been working in Silicon Valley and I'd been around startups so much and had been an early employee at a lot of startups, I knew that I, this could be a bigger business. And so this, I knew that this was my chance to have a media company. So that was when I started building out the network and looking for partners. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause it's uh, it's definitely part of it too, I think is the format, the way that you've done it and the consistency. I, Cause I, the last guest I actually had on, I was Chris Coyer, and one of the things he, he's founder of CSS Tricks. And one of the things he mentioned, because I asked him a question and two, because he started very early on when it came to building his blog, CSS Tricks, which has become very popular today. Similarly, um, your podcast is very prominent and very successful today. And it seems the parallel between the two that I'm noticing here is that you started early and you stuck with it. You're very consistent. You're going on 10 years now. So, how big of a role do you think the consistency has played for you? I think it's, I think it's really important. I think it does help. And I think if you want to, if you get a strong start, being consistent will help you keep going. But, you know, I was equally consistent with my science podcast and it didn't take off in the same way. And I looked at it and I thought, this is never going to be a business. This is never going to be worth the time I'm putting into it. So I, I'm a little bit of a contrarian when people say, follow your passion and it'll all work out. Right. Well, I was just, I was just as passionate about my science podcast, but it, it and I was consistent and it, it just didn't take off in the same way way. So I think you give something a fair try and you are persistent and you work hard at it, but you also have to recognize when it's time to move on. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good point. So in terms of the actual uh, Grammar Girl podcast, and you know, since you made um, reference to the fact that you've been going for so long with it, and again, the consistency um, isn't like the win-all, but uh, you know, going this long and having, having gone 10 years now, um, what do you do to come up with new ideas uh, for new episodes? Well, it's interesting. I was just talking to another one of our hosts about that this morning, and I've done more than 500 episodes. So I'm at the point where, you know, okay, I covered semicolons six years ago, and most of my listeners don't remember that. So it's okay to do the same topic again. Um, I try to use news hooks to make the articles and the podcasts, you know, timely and interesting. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And I find that I often, um, go back and update a show and give it a new news hook, but the educational content that's in there is the same. So another really good example is, um, last week I did a show about the difference between the words woman and female and how you should say that Hillary Clinton is the first female presidential nominee for a major political party. And that was an update of a show I did a few years ago when Sarah Palin was the first vice presidential nominee, a female vice presidential nominee for a major party. So, you know, I did this show, I don't know, I guess it was four years ago about Sarah Palin, and then it was relevant again, and I updated it, but I used the Hillary Clinton hook this time. Gotcha. So, yeah, so I do a lot of that now. And then still, though, I'm surprised there's still, I'm amazed that there are things I haven't covered. So I I get a lot of questions. Um, on Twitter and Facebook, and I use those um, as starting points for new topics too. Gotcha, gotcha. We well, speaking of social media. Clearly, 
Uh, you're skilled when it comes to grammar. That's your brand. So one of the things I actually wonder, because I follow you on Twitter, and I find myself, you know, when I'm posting on Twitter, I'm trying to do the best I can, you know, to make sure that I get the grammar right. But I always come back later. I'm like, yeah, that's the wrong use of your. Do I delete the tweet or do I just leave it and just go <laughs> with it? So, mm-hmm. but for you, there's like, for me, it's, I'm a graphic designer and a website developer. So I think to some degree, people are willing to kind of like overlook if I make a mistake on Twitter, whereas that's your brand. So is there any like extra added pressure when you're posting on social media to double, triple check, or has that just kind of become part of the normal flow of life of making sure everything's right? Yeah, people love to catch me in errors yeah, on social media. <laughs> you know, I'll have an error in a tweet every few months, and um, I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I delete them, and sometimes I just tweet after them and say, "Whoops, <laughs> you caught me." <laughs> you know, because typos happen; um, they just do. And on so, on, I have an assistant who posts um, on Facebook for me. She selects the posts and queues them up in Hootsuite, and then I'm supposed to review them before they go live. But I don't always get to reviewing them, or I miss things too. I'm I'm not a great proofreader. Actually, I tend to miss things, so things go out even more often with errors on. Facebook. But the good thing about Facebook is that you can edit your posts. So then I'll right. just go in and thank people for letting me know and fix it. So that's a lot nicer. And every once in a while, I'll tweet that Twitter should give us the ability to edit posts. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I bet one, I guess one pro to that is the fact that it definitely would help you kind of hone in your skills continually. The fact that you've always got people watching and we know we all know how the internet is. There's always that uh, those few people out there who just revel in the in the opportunity to you know point that out you know when you make mistakes so <laughs> right and you know i think an important thing about brand is that i've never tried to present myself as the absolute expert either you know in my very early shows i ended by saying i don't claim to be perfect i'm just trying to help um and i i don't say that anymore but but that's still the, the philosophy you know my brand is that I'm learning along with you, you know, maybe more so today after 10 years, I'm the expert, but in the beginning I certainly wasn't. And I still rely on the style guides to, you know, help me figure out what to write in my shows. I mean, that's where the rules are. So I'm always referring to reference books and a big part of my brand is not being pedantic, not saying I'm always right. Everyone else is stupid, which is, something that, especially when I started, was more how things were in the grammar world. I think it tended to be more snarky back then, and it's gotten a little more friendly and descriptive now. But but yeah, so if I have a typo on social media, you know, it's embarrassing and it's bad and I fix it, but it's also part of I'm here with you. We're all in the same boat together. Language is fascinating. Let's learn how to do it better together. Yeah, and I think that's part of what's kind of separated you because I see on social media all the time, there's tons and tons of accounts out there who are quote unquote, you know, uh, grammar police. We'll sit there and they'll correct celebrities and they'll correct this person and that's just kind of what they're known for. So it just kind of flips it into a – it just annoys people. It's just kind of a negative connotation where I think you've taken the same concept and turned it into more of a positive one where everybody's learning together. So I think that's part of what's kind of helped build your brand as well and I think you've done a good job of of sticking to that for sure. Yeah. I mean if anything over the years, I've become more aware of how language changes and I've become – I'm not a descriptivist because I know that people come to me because they want an answer. But I do like explaining when things aren't 
hard and fast rules. Like, okay, this is the way Chicago says to do it, but there are other ways of doing it too. And don't get all like thinking you're the, the only right way to do it. Yep. Yep. Totally. Okay. So you've also kind of switching gears a little bit. You've also published a number of books on grammar. Uh, some of which I noticed were crafted to be part of a series, which I found really interesting. Titles like 101 Misused Words, 101 Troublesome Words You'll Master in No Time, and 101 Words to Sound Smart. From a publishing aspect, have you noticed any benefits to creating a uniformed book series as opposed to, you know, you also have a number of one-off titles? Yeah, in nonfiction, no, I really haven't. Those that 101 book, 101 words series, those books have vastly different sales numbers. Some do really well and some don't sell so well at all. So it doesn't appear that there's been any benefit to having a series. Um, you know, we haven't sold bundles or anything like that. We haven't really, I, as far as I know of, we haven't really marketed them. You know, pushing the series aspect of it, but. For, what, for whatever reason, just existing as, as a series doesn't seem to have made a big difference. Yeah, because it was, maybe it's just me from coming from a design perspective, but I look at all your books and I say, well, that's really cool. There's actually a series that you've done as well. So I find that really interesting. So I can tell that definitely makes sense because I have a little bit of a background in the publishing industry. So I've seen from on the fiction end of things that people are a lot more prone to create, you know, a series and have that kind of build upon itself. But I think the difference here is that it's Grammar Girl that's the unifying element, not necessarily the fact that it's a series. So you've done a number of one-off ones, a one-off specific books as well. And, you know, how is that attributed or added to the Grammar Girl brand, just the very uh, act of publishing these books? Yeah, I think it's been really helpful. Um, people, I mean, for one thing, I got to go out on book tour twice. So, you know, I got to go out to you know, eight or 10 different cities each time and meet fans at the bookstore and make those connections. And I still remember the people I met, you know, it's been a few years now. So six or seven years ago, maybe on my first book tour. And I still remember the people I met and I think they remember me and feel more connected and, you know, still interact on the Facebook page. And, you know, when I'm up for an award, they let me know they voted and, and things like that. And I think, you know, the make getting out every once in a while and making those personal connections really, you know, it, maybe you don't reach a lot of people, but the connections are a lot stronger. And then I think having a book that's in a bookstore that people see when they, when they go in or when they get a promotion from Amazon, you know, it reminds them that you exist and it, it just sort of makes you seem more credible and, it's another. It's it's part. It's also part of that being wherever people are when they want the information. So I'm online, but I'm also offline. Right, and that's actually a, an interesting unifying theme that I've kind of been picking up just as you've been going through some of these different things. Whereas you don't pick necessarily the avenues that you personally like. I mean, I'm not. You know, obviously you probably like these different avenues for sure. But it's smart in the sense that you pick Twitter, you pick Facebook, you pick Snapchat, you pick a book specifically because you know your audience will be there. So mm -hmm. uh, proactive in that sense, So, uh, which I'm sure has definitely added to uh, the brand continuing to grow for sure. 
Yeah, I, I try to do what makes sense. The one thing that when I think about brand, you know, when I when I started, it was intentionally a cartoon. The Grammar Girl avatar is a cartoon in part because um, grammar is so intimidating. I wanted it to seem fun and friendly and unintimidating, and a cartoon character achieves that. And also because, you know, I imagine that I'll hand Grammar Girl over to someone else someday, you know, that I'm not going to be 70 and doing Grammar Girl still. And it is something that I hope will exist for decades. So, um, you know, it's a cartoon character, but then, you know, with these new video channels coming out like Snapchat, it's me, it's my face. And I, and I wonder how that is going to affect the brand. Um, because I don't want to, I've always been really resistant to attaching me personally to the brand. You know, I don't want people to think necessarily a grammar girl is Mignon Fogarty. I just want them to attach to grammar girl and think that that's a great service and brand. And, um, my publisher laughed when my book came out. I I think I'm the only author they've ever worked with who said, can you make my name smaller on the cover? That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) so it is interesting though, now that video is becoming so much more important. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky thing because I I know I'd personally have done a little bit similar with rightly designed in the sense that it's the brand stands by itself so it can always be its own thing it's separate from me and from my name similar to kind of what you've done uh with grammar girl which makes sense but it's becoming more and more difficult in today's digital age where everything seems like it has to be personal uh you know facebook has opened it up a little bit so you can do you know a fan page but then exactly what you said something like snapchat you're looking at your face it's it's you it's very much a personal one-to-one so it is becoming a little bit more tricky to kind of detach the two <laughs> for yeah, sure definitely <laughs> So a little while back, uh, shifting gears again, you had also crowdfunded your own card game called Peevors, which I found really interesting. That was a really clever idea. Could you tell us a little bit about Peevors and what was the process yeah. like of doing a crowdfunding? I think that's one of the my favorite things that I've done. Um, I have always imagined, when people say pet peeves, I've always imagined little monsters. <laughs> And I have a friend, um, Joe Kissenweather, who designs games. And I had I, I had always wanted to make a game, a card game, with the pet peeves. And it just happened a few years ago that he was free, and I was at a point where I could do it. And crowdfunding became a thing. Really, it was crowdfunding that made it possible. Um, you know, I think it would have been very hard to do without crowdfunding. So. Yeah, we designed the game, and um, Len Peralta did the art. He's well known in the art and the podcasting and online communities. And it was just, you know, it was great because Joe did the game and Len did the art, and I had the brand and sort of the idea, and I worked closely with them. But you know, they did the hard work of the the rules and the the art, and and um, I did the crowdfunding campaign, and it was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. It's uh, it's just time-consuming and emotionally wrenching, and you know, you're out there talking to everyone you can and giving every interview you can and essentially begging for money every day for a month. And uh, uh, typically crowdfunding, you get a big surge at the beginning and a big surge at the end, and the middle is just this quiet, dead period. And it, it, you just get so depressed in the middle when no one's reacting because it's not new and there isn't time pressure. It's not ending soon. So that middle period is so hard and you think you're not going to make it. Um, but we did. We exceeded our crowdfunding goals and the game got made. And um, now I think it, you know it's, it's probably one of my favorite things I've made. And I also feel like it's one of my biggest failures because 
So I, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm the chair of media entrepreneurship at the University of Nevada in Reno. And so I'm supposed to be this great entrepreneur. And I have this product that is awesome, that I love, that is not for sale anywhere right now. Because taking it from, it exists in crowdfunding to then, you know, getting it for sale somewhere, you know, printed in China and for sale on Amazon or how, however I do it. You know, I've gotten quotes, but I just, it seems kind of daunting and I haven't pulled the trigger. So I think it's almost two years after the crowdfunding and it, people email me asking where they can buy it and I have to tell them it's not available anywhere. And there are easy ways to get it for sale. I could put it up on a print-on-demand site tomorrow, but that feels like not doing it the right way. But holding out to do it the right way has meant that I haven't done it at all. So I'm, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yes, it's, it's definitely a, a tricky crossroads there because you're absolutely right. If you do something print on demand, the, the printing quality is not going to nearly be as nice as if you do something like a traditional office. You find an offset printer and that sort of thing. In terms of the actual crowdfunding itself, it looks like you did a really good job because you were aiming at 15000 and you got 28000 So you nearly doubled your goal. So that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, oh, gosh, probably – a third of that came on the last day. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Very, yeah, it's, it's really, we, yeah, it was definitely in the last two or three days before we crossed that 15,000 mark, so we weren't sure we were going to make it. So, yeah, and that's how crowdfunding works. You hear it over and over again, but to live it is uh, crazy and stressful. Definitely. So, yeah, well, in addition, I mean, as if, you know, we have books as well as a card game, it looks like as well you also have an iOS app called Grammar Pop, which is available for iPhone and iPad. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Right. And that one is for sale now. <laughs> yeah, that one is on the iTunes store. I did see that. <laughs> right. And and so um, that was a game I really just thought it should exist. I, I was looking for a game to play. It's a, a Grammar Pop, you match words in sentences with their part of speech. So you get a sentence with words in clouds and then you pull over whether they're a verb or the word is a verb or a noun or something like that. And I just thought it should exist. I wanted to play it myself and, um, it didn't. So I decided I had to make it and, um, we got a bunch of bids and they were really expensive. And so I actually learned to code to make that game myself. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I used a, a tool called game salad, which, you know, is sort of like using Dreamweaver to make a website. It's, it's an interface. You need to understand the logic of how a game is made, you don't have to learn an actual coding language, although learning how to use their system is almost like learn, learning a coding language itself. And then an artist at Macmillan, who usually works on books, did all the art for the game. And um, I ended up working with also Neil Whitman, a linguist who um, writes for the Grammar Girl podcast pretty regularly, because it turns out it is really complicated to categorize words based on their part of speech in sentences. Yeah, I'd imagine. Um, it, it's, it's a lot more complicated than you'd think. And then there are different schools of thought about what kinds of words are what part of speech. So, you know, I got con I, I was having a hard time, and then I got some textbooks, and they didn't agree with each other. <laughs> and so I ended up hiring Neil to help me um, categorize all the words, too. So we have, I think there are 14,000 sentences. Oh, wow. <laughs> and in the game, and there are 28 levels, and I think it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it, it was another great experience. I, I think I like the card game more because it's a physical thing I can hold in my hand. But I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about Grammar Pop that you know from teachers and parents who said you know they they feel like their kids liked it and learned something while playing it. 
Gotcha. Yeah, it looks like it's done very well on on iTunes. So it's very it's a very interesting thing to explore because there's a lot of different things we've we've gone through from the card game to the app to books, and it looks like you've just done a really good job of continuing to expand the Grammar Girl uh, brand as well as to keep it all really uniform. So yeah, it's very well done. There's a lot you can learn from. Are there any other? I've kind of touched on some of the main ones. Are there any other projects out there that you'd like to just talk about really briefly or? Um, well, I think you're really, I, I mean, I, yeah, I do have a lot of different things because I like to try new things, I, you know, to keep it interesting for me, making those games really helped over the years to give me something new to think about. The other big thing that we do is uh, webinars. So we do, I do training webinars in partnership with Reagan.com. And so I've done, I think three of those over the last few years. And the most recent one is about AP style. And um, I'm just getting ready to do a, a 2016 update to that AP style webinar through Reagan.com. Since the AP style updates their book every year, we right, have to do an right. update to the webinar. So, yep. um, so that's another, another line of business that's been really important for, for Grammar Girl. Gotcha. Well, very, very cool. Is there, and yeah, is, um, where can people go uh, if they want to find out some more information about you or to take a look at some of these projects? Yeah. So if you go to quickanddirtytips.com, you can find every article and podcast I've ever done. Um, Grammar Pop has its own website. So it's at grammarpop.com. If you um, do a Google search for PVORS, you can find the crowdfunding page at fundanything.com. And if you message me through there, I can put you on a list to be notified when it eventually becomes available. And uh, probably, you know, the best thing would be to sign up for my email newsletter. So at quickanddirtytips.com, I have a weekly email grammar girl newsletter. And when I launch anything new, it's always in that newsletter. Gotcha. Very cool. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and put uh, links to these things as well in the show notes. You can find those at rightlydesignedshow.com. And I just want to say thanks, Mignon, for taking the time to come on the program. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Okay, that's going to conclude our interview with Mignon Fogarty, also known as Grammar Girl. Be sure to take a quick moment to visit RightlyDesignedShow.com, and I'm going to leave a little bit more information there in the show notes, as well as some of the links to the places that we have discussed during the length of the interview. So I just want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the program, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed Show? please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesign.com show for links to these channels and more.